You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a five-part series of creation messages that John Whitcomb Jr. presented at Winona Lake Bible Conference 1966. John Whitcomb Jr. was a professor of Old Testament at Grace Theological Seminary. Now, here is John Whitcomb Jr. on Today in the Word radio. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. Our attention is attracted, first of all, to the wonderful person of this passage of Scripture, the Creator God himself. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Who is this God of whom the Bible thus speaks? It is wonderful to know that the Hebrew word Elohim is a plural word which has latent within it the possibility of a plurality of persons which the New Testament informs us is three in number. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This infinite triune God flung this universe into existence by his omnipotence. But the New Testament tells us that even though, as we may say, God the Father planned the world and the Holy Spirit finished or carried through its creation, that the Son of God, the second person of the triune God, had actually spoke the creative word. The Lord Jesus Christ was the creator of the heavens and the earth. For Christians, this is a thrilling truth because Christians are personally acquainted with this Savior through redemption and the experience of the new birth, the one who touched our darkened soul and spoke light into us is the one who created the world by his word. Now there are three passages in the New Testament that tell us this. John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 tell us that in the beginning was the word, and this is John's name for Jesus the Word, the full expression of God's person and power. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And now especially verse 3, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And of course this covers everything. Sun, moon, stars, earth, atmosphere, oceans, 
plants, animals, and people. All things were made by Jesus Christ, and this word became flesh and dwelt among us, says John in chapter 1 of his gospel, verse 14, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It has always been a staggering thing to me to realize that as the Virgin Mary held the Lord Jesus in her arms, this word that was made flesh, she held in her arms the oldest person in the world. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says concerning that birth scene, O Bethlehem, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me he that shall be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. The Lord Jesus was there in the beginning. Who can imagine how vast and marvelous is the scope of these statements of Scripture? All things were made by him, and the Apostle Paul confirms this truth in Colossians chapter 1 when he tells us exactly what these things included. Colossians 1.16, For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist or hold together. He made the universe, and he holds the universe by his power. This is the Savior that we know. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 tells us that by him God made the ages, the time-space universe in which everything, including ourselves, moves and has its being. And thus, when we read Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, all of these thoughts should come to our minds as Christians when we read that in the beginning God created the heaven and earth. Jesus Christ spoke that word. Now how did Jesus do this? What is involved in this statement that God created the heaven and the earth? Here in the New Testament we have another commentary or explanation of what uh, God really meant in the book of Genesis when he told us that. And that is found in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. Here is the key verse of the New Testament for interpreting Genesis 1.1. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Now notice what happened. So that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. In other words, when God created the world, he just spoke a word and nothing became something. We have a special word that we apply to this doctrine, namely ex nihilo, creation, which means 
as a Latin expression, out of nothing. Now, of course, more technically, we should say that the heavens and earth came not from nothing, but from the power of the invisible God whom no man can see or hath seen in his essence. The world didn't come from nothing, it came from God. But the point of this statement or doctrine is that God did not have to use pre-existent materials. When God created the world, he didn't reshape or refashion something that was already there from all eternity. He spoke and the visible and invisible universe was created. Indeed, the only way to grasp this amazing truth is by faith. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed in this way. God spoke, and out of nothing, an amazing complexity of things appeared. Faith, according to the Bible, is not simply a blind leap into the dark, whereby we hope something is true but just aren't sure and have no real evidence for it. Faith, according to scripture, to the contrary, is a glad acceptance of a great mass of evidence which God brings to bear directly upon the human heart by the Holy Spirit. And this is the most uh, unanswerable kind of evidence, namely the conviction of the Spirit of God that we are God's creatures, that we belong to him by right of creation, that we in ourselves have no power to solve our own problems, to say nothing of creating things. We are his creatures, the works of his hands. As David said in Psalm 8, when I behold thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And as he wrote in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, not of man, the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. And the Spirit of God applies these witnesses in the sky, the very nature of this universe, the marvels of this world, to the human heart with this message, namely, that God and God alone is sovereign and is creator. And by faith in what God has said, to the heart, by the Holy Spirit, through the word, we understand this amazing doctrine of creation. May I pause here just a moment to say, dear friends, that if this verse is true, then it is impossible for a person to really believe the first chapter of Genesis if he is not a born-again Christian. May I say that again? It is impossible for a person, however brilliant he may be, to really grasp the creation narrative in Genesis unless he personally knows Jesus Christ as his Savior. Why? Because the only way to understand the doctrine of creation is by what? 
by faith, not by brilliance, not by cleverness, but by faith. That means that as a little child we come to the word of God and believe what God has said because of who he is. This is faith, an opening of the eyes to the marvelous truth that God is real, that God is alive, that God has spoken, that he has written a book to tell us what he has done. And if we believe God by faith in his word, then we have understanding. Do you notice the arrangement here? Faith first, then understanding. God grants an understanding of his mysteries in proportion to our willingness to believe what he tells us. And this is a promise that he holds forth to young and old, to rich and poor, to the brilliantly educated, and to those who may be underprivileged in the educational experiences of this world. God is no respecter of persons. And it's a thrill to me to know that we are all on the same ground. Namely, we don't know anything on this amazing subject of creation apart from what God has chosen to tell us in this book. By faith we understand that God created this world out of nothing. Some people have said, well, that verse really does prove the atomic theory Namely, that uh, the physical, visible substances that we have in the world are made up of tiny atoms that are so small you can't see them. <laughs> in other words, that uh, God made visible things out of invisible ones, namely electrons and protons and neutrons and atoms and so on. Well, I would like to suggest that uh, that is not what the verse is saying. Do you know why? because there are thousands of scientists in the world today who believe in the atomic theory and they don't have to have any faith in the word of God to do it. That verse isn't talking about the atomic theory. God didn't make this universe out of electrons and atoms and protons. He made electrons, atoms, protons out of nothing. And the only way to grasp this to really take it seriously, to understand it, is by faith in what God has said in Scripture. Now, how long did this take? Granted that God brought the world into existence out of nothing, how long did this take? Was it a gradual process in which first you start with nothing and then you have a little something and then a little more of something and then through vast millions and billions of years you finally get the kind of heavens and earth that we know about. This is what we might call a theistic evolution idea of the heavens and the earth. But I would recommend a careful pondering of Psalm 33 along this line to see whether God chose to use vast periods of time to do this work of creating. Psalm 33, verses 6 to 9. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Now note what happens in verse 9. 
for he spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The impression I receive from this passage is that when God spoke, things happened instantly. There was no delay, no resistance on the part of the materials involved, no scrounging around for methods or plans or blueprints. God simply spoke and it happened. Now I recognize this morning that this is far and beyond anything of our earthly experience. Whenever I speak a word of command, very rarely, if ever, does anything happen instantly or perfectly. And this is true of the most brilliant engineer or scientist or politician or whatever realm you want to speak about in human experience. The human command must be somehow supplemented by vast amounts of human energy plus time in order for anything to happen. But you see, dear friends, God is different. My ways are above thy ways, said God to Israel in Isaiah 55. And one of the thrilling things about the doctrine of creation is to discover that the God concerning whom this Bible speaks is one who is not limited by time and processes as we are. He is not a creature. He is not finite. He is infinite. He is the creator. And this is something that we'll never grasp by mere reasoning. By faith, we understand it. You know, the apostle Peter said, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years. What does that mean? That means that God can accomplish in one literal day what man or nature or both would take thousands of years, if ever, to accomplish. God doesn't need time to do things. He's above time. In fact, he created time. What is time? It's simply the relationship of moving objects in the universe. And time didn't begin until God created things that move and change in reference to each other. What is a month? It's a measurement of how long it takes the moon to get around the earth. It's simply a measurement of movements of related bodies. And God is above time because he created this universe. And he could accomplish in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, what human energies or nature's processes could never do. I believe, therefore, that we are on very solid biblical grounds when we say that the creation of the heavens and earth was not a vast, extended process of time. This is, of course, the theory of evolution, pure and simple, but I find very little resemblance between the theory of evolution and the book of Genesis. This is a stupendous statement, dynamic beyond all human comprehension. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That Hebrew word bara created is a technical word 
which consistently is used in the Old Testament of the special power of God to accomplish the bringing into existence of new things without the use of pre-existent materials. It's a tremendous word, appropriate for the God to whom it refers. And so in creation, God did things that aren't happening today. Creation week is unique in the sense that things appeared full-grown, mature, highly complex, instantly, out of nothing. But one of the basic laws of science that we learn today is that this kind of event is not occurring in our present time-space universe. The first law of thermodynamics, namely the law of energy conservation, tells us that nothing is being created. Nothing. It's true that new things can be fashioned out of old things, or they can change their state or their shape or their form. But nothing can be created out of nothing. There were recently some scientists, astronomers in England, who tried to solve the problem of where the solar system and the universe came from by suggesting that every once in a while, here and there in outer space, hydrogen atoms pop out of nothing. Now this is an intriguing idea, but utterly ridiculous. And it's fortunate that uh, the inventor of the theory, Dr. Fred Hoyle of Cambridge University, has finally publicly abandoned his theory. You see, the Word of God tells us that there's only one person, there's only one power that can do this, that's God. Also, we live in a universe in which complex, highly organized things are disintegrating, are falling apart, are getting old. And the scriptures tell us that the heavens are waxing old like a garment. The sun gives forth its energy, and it's a one-way process. It can never get it back again. It dissipates its heat into outer space, and it'll never return. Someone had to start that sun burning in the first place to build its energy into it to accomplish its stupendous function as a creature of God to send warmth and energy and light to the planet Earth. In the beginning, therefore, God put energy into things. Ever since then, energy has been, is being scattered or dissipated. That's the second law of thermodynamics. And therefore we see that creation week was different. Things happen then are not, that are not happening today. And we read in the second chapter of Genesis, verses 1 to 3, that when God completed the work of creating things out of nothing, that that kind of work was finished. The heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested or ceased on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it or set it apart, because that in it he rested or ceased from all his work which God created and made. 
Now, the point of that passage is this, dear friends. God has set a line of demarcation between creation week and every week that's followed since then. And it's this. During that week, he made things out of nothing instantly. The week after that, and every other week, including the one we're existing in now, is characterized by God's holding together the things he made and the aging or decaying of the universe by the process of entropy. God is not creating things anymore. The theory of evolution, of course, tells us that things are always being created. The Bible says they are not. Creation week was unique, never to be repeated. And the only way we can know this is by what means? By faith, we understand. By taking God's explanations and taking them seriously and believing them and building our whole understanding and concept on the basis of God's explanations. When we consider that first verse of Genesis, we see some other wonderful things. It says that in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. What were the heavens like when God first made them? I believe the Bible tells us that there are three heavens. You know, Paul tells us over in 2 Corinthians that on one amazing occasion early in his Christian experience, God granted him the unique privilege of being caught up to the what? The third heaven. Well, I believe that this implies that under the third heaven, which is God's immediate presence, there must be two other ones. The second heaven, presumably the heaven of what we call outer space, where the sun, moon, and stars move. And the first heaven closer to Earth would be the atmospheric blanket that surrounds our planet in which the uh, birds fly and the clouds move. Three heavens. And when God first created them, they were somewhat different than they are today. For instance, that third heaven was populated with hundreds of millions of absolutely perfect angels. And the greatest angel of all of them was named Lucifer. And he was a marvelous creature to behold. The book of Ezekiel chapter 28 tells us that he was perfect in all his ways from the very day that God created him. Perfect in beauty, thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom. And all the vast angelic beings in their various gradations were there too the very moment God created the heavens. How do we know this? Well, I think we have a pretty good hint that this is true on the basis of Job 38, where we read in verses 6 and 7 that when the foundations of this earth were laid, angels were there to sing about it. That's right. They rejoiced in this first 
visible aspect of God's created universe. Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Speaking of the earth's creation. Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. You see, morning stars in the scripture seems to refer to angels. Oftentimes, even in the book of Revelation, angels are referred to as stars. Sons of God also is a word referring to angels in this particular passage in the Old Testament. It literally means a being directly created by God, not procreated from some other creature, but directly created. Adam, you know, was a son of God, wasn't he? Luke chapter 3 tells us that because God made him directly. He didn't have any human father or mother. So angels were sons of God. Job chapter 1 tells us that Satan came to the presence of God with the other sons of God. At this time, however, he was perfect in fellowship with his creator. And he, along with all the other angelic beings, sang and shouted for joy when they saw the amazing spectacle of an earth appearing upon which the drama of redemption would be displayed in the history of the human race. How many of the secrets and wonders of this purpose of God were shared with these angels we'll never know. But there must have been something about this that made them rejoice as they saw it. I believe that the second heaven was dark and empty. It did not have the sun, moon, and stars, which according to the book of Genesis did not uh, appear until the fourth day of creation. Now there are some who have problems with this idea because it is difficult, isn't it, for us to think that when God created the heavens and the earth, that the only planet or body in the universe was just our planet, the earth. Surely, the earth must have come from the sun, or the sun must have been there first, and the stars, which are so much greater in size and magnitude. Can we really take seriously the possibility that... Uh, the earth came first and the sun, moon, and stars later on the fourth day? Well, I would like to suggest that this is a definite possibility. And there are two reasons I would like to suggest to you for this. In the first place, a spiritual reason. Man throughout history since the fall has tended to pervert the real significance of the heavenly bodies into idolatry. Now this has been an age-old temptation, namely to look up at the sun, moon, and stars and to say, these are gods. These are the real ultimate sources of our being. Apart from the amazing sun that rises each morning, it would be impossible for us to live. And to that son we owe our life, our very being, our existence, our origin. 
And that's why in the Old Testament scriptures, God repeatedly denounced this tendency on the part of Israelites even to follow the ways of the heathen in worshiping these heavenly bodies. In Deuteronomy 4.19, for example, God warned the people, lest thou lift up thine eyes unto heaven, and when thou seest the sun, the moon, and the stars, even all the host of heaven shouldest be driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord thy God hath divided unto all nations under the whole heaven. And Jeremiah spoke of this problem, too. Over in chapter 10, verse 2 of his prophecy, Learn not the way of the heathen, and be not dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the heathen are dismayed at them. They are awe-inspired. They worship these. The Babylonians had a sun god. His name was Shamash. They had a moon god named Sin. So did the Egyptians. All the ancient peoples attributed divine powers and dignity to these mere creatures. And Job, the old patriarch, had his problems along this line too, you know. Consider Job 31 and the sore temptation that vexed him along these lines. Job 31, 26, If I beheld the sun when it shined, or the moon walking in brightness, and my heart hath been secretly enticed, or my mouth hath kissed my hand in worship, this also were an iniquity to be punished by the judge, for I should have denied the God that is above. Did you know that modern science practically deifies the sun? That's right, because the theory of evolution, which is taught in all of our great institutions of higher learning, state-supported colleges and universities, insist on the fact that this earth and every living thing in it owes its origin to the sun. That this earth was flung off from the sun or some type of a proto-sun billions of years ago, and life on this earth began when sun rays acting upon chemicals somehow brought life into the ancient oceans. And the sun, with loving care, serving as an incubator, has brought living things to maturity, and finally, here we are. Do you think this is honoring to God? I don't. This is one reason why I think God has made it crystal clear in the book of Genesis that this sun is not the origin of the earth. The earth came first. In fact, there were living things all over this earth before the sun even began. Why? This is God's way of telling us he doesn't need the sun to control this world. This world could operate under the power of God directly without the help of any physical, created entity whatsoever. We can almost say that the sun, biblically, is an afterthought, which replaced an original light that God created in the first day that served as the temporary function of day-night relationships 
on this earth as it whirled on its axis and passed through this phase in reference to this light source somewhere in the sky. And the fruit trees and the herbs yielding seed and the grass were very happy in the light of that original light without the help of the sun. This may well be one of God's methods of warning us against the idolatry that is so common in human experience. Some may say, well, really, the Bible doesn't say that God created the sun, moon, and stars on the fourth day. It just says he made them. Doesn't that mean they were already there and God was simply now either reshaping them or else removing perhaps a cloud veil that covered them from sight? But they had been there all along. I'm afraid this doesn't really do justice to this word made. If you look carefully at verse 16, it says God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. Whereas in Genesis 1.1, it says he created the heavens and earth. But is there really any difference in this chapter between created and made? I don't think so. Look, for example, at verse 21 and see if you can see any difference here. So God created great whales. Now compare that with verse 25. And God made the beast of the earth. Now are whales made out of nothing, but beasts made out of something? Is that the difference? I don't think so. It's just a synonym. It's two ways of saying the same thing. God often uses different verbs or expressions to teach the same truth. Just like when God created man in his own image and his own likeness. What's the difference between image and likeness? Nobody knows. They're synonyms. Look at verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image. Verse 27, so he created man in his own image. Made, created, same idea. So when it tells us that God on the fourth day made the two great lights, the sun and moon, it means he created them. It means they weren't there before. They weren't evolving from something else. They sprang into existence instantly by the spoken word of an omnipotent God. I feel that Genesis chapter 1 is telling us this. Whatever may be the problems we have with the idea of supernatural creation, we must learn to put our confidence in a God with whom nothing's impossible. One of the biggest mistakes a Christian can make in interpreting Genesis 1 is to bring into this chapter all his own ideas, thoughts, theories, and experiences as to the way things operate in the world today, and then, as it were, to tell God what could or could not have happened. This is a twisting of scripture that leads to the destruction of a fruitful study of scripture and leads many into the errors of our day. Like Moses approaching God at the burning bush, heard that word coming from the Lord Jesus Christ pre-incarnate within that flaming fire. Put off your shoes from off your feet. Why? 
because the ground whereon thou standest is holy ground. This is God's requirement, I believe, for understanding the doctrine of creation. Leave your shoes behind. Come to God on his terms and listen to what he says and compare scripture with scripture, not scripture with human theory. And I believe that we should be led into a wondrous experience of having our eyes open to behold things from God's word that perhaps we never realized were there. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of five messages John Whitcomb Jr. presented at Winona Lake Bible Conference 1966. John Whitcomb Jr. was a professor of Old Testament at Grace Theological Seminary. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.